A bill taking aim at TikTok facing changes on Capitol Hill. This after the app spent $100 million to lobby Congress. Charged for acting as a Chinese agent, federal prosecutors now targeting the head of a Washington-based think tank. Dozens of Chinese military aircraft spotted near Taiwan, flanked by warships. The flyby following a speech hinting at tighter ties with the U.S. And a Trojan horse in the Pacific. The Solomon Islands and China are strengthening relations, signing nine deals in Beijing, including a policing pact. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Concerns over national security brushed away by $100 million. That's how much TikTok's parent company ByteDance spent on lobbying efforts in D.C. over a bill targeting TikTok. Democratic Senator Mark Warner told Reuters that relentless lobbying slowed a bit of momentum on a bill introduced in March. The legislation would grant the Commerce Department new authority involving foreign parties that pose national security risks. The White House endorses those efforts. In March, the Biden administration demanded TikTok's Chinese owners divest their stake or face a U.S. ban. TikTok is wildly popular in the states, with over 150 million Americans flocking to the app. Warner says there's a clear need for legislation, telling Reuters there have been another three or four apps that have come out that are Chinese-controlled, so we need a fair rules-based process to deal with this. Calls against TikTok have been growing. Nearly 60% of Americans see TikTok as a threat to national security. That's according to a new poll by the Pew Research Center, surveying over 5,000 Americans. Over 30 states have banned TikTok on government devices, with Montana being the first to issue a statewide ban. TikTok is fighting back. A judge has scheduled an October 12th hearing per the company's request. TikTok did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan doling out charges on the head of a Washington-based think tank. Gao Luft is a citizen of the U.S. and Israel and co-directs the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security. But now he's accused of working as an unregistered agent for Beijing. Prosecutors say he recruited a former U.S. official on China's behalf in 2016, urging that official to support policies that would benefit Beijing. Luff reportedly did so without registering as a foreign agent, as U.S. law demands. On top of that, he allegedly tried to arrange weapon sales without a license between Chinese companies in countries like Libya, the United Arab Emirates and Kenya, as well as set up talks for an oil deal between Iran and a Chinese energy company. Such an agreement would violate U.S. sanctions. Luft is not in U.S. custody, and the think tank hadn't responded to a request for comment by airtime. Over in Taiwan, troops spotted 34 Chinese military aircraft flying near the island Tuesday. That update from Taiwan's defense ministry. Four Chinese warships also appeared as part of combat readiness patrol. The military flex comes one day after Taiwan's vice president gave a speech. In it, he said Taiwan's president should someday be able to visit the White House, suggesting he will continue to promote U.S.-Taiwan relations despite Beijing's anger. Vice President Lai is the chairman of Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party and a top candidate for the island's upcoming presidential election. Lai wrote in the Wall Street Journal that if he's elected, he could keep the peace with China. 
A beautiful dream turned to a nightmare. A China-made power plant in Jordan designed to help a domestic power shortage. Now embroiled in a heated controversy that could put Jordan billions of dollars in debt to China. Here's the story. In the middle of the desert, the kingdom of Jordan is facing financial hardship. Even though it ranks number four in the world for the most oil shale, Jordan is also one of the most dependent on foreign energy sources because of the high costs involved in extracting the fuel. In 2012, the Adirat Power Company proposed a plan, pitching to officials that it could satisfy 15% of the country's power needs. That's through extracting oil shale from the desert. Adirat is China's largest overseas private company, born out of Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. China's state-owned enterprise, Guangdong Energy Group, owns a 45% stake in it, making the company its largest shareholder. While Jordan's government saw the plan as a win-win for both China and Jordan, it gradually realized some concerns. Besides the technical challenges and expensive oil extraction costs, the Jordan government's contract with Adirat would cost it $8.4 billion over the next 30 years. Despite China's $1.6 billion in loans to the country, Jordan could still quickly become billions of dollars in debt to Beijing. Some have called China's Belt and Road Initiative a debt trap. Among its main issues is transparency, or the lack thereof, around the BRI. When developing countries struggle to get loans for infrastructure projects, the BRI steps in, often handing out large Chinese loans. But when these countries can't repay their debt, China takes control of that infrastructure, like land or seaports. Examples include Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Nepal, Ethiopia, and the Congo. Now the grief between China and Jordan is souring bilateral tensions. Jordan's government is protesting and seeking international arbitration. One of the big criticisms of China and the lending on the Belt and Road Initiative is that it's all secret and uh, it's opaque. Another expert hints at the purpose behind China's BRI initiative. And it's going to manipulate their own natural resources and put them in potentially into this debt trap kind of mindset that we've seen play out in other areas where the Belt and Road has gone. Captain James Fennell, former intelligence director for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, says that plays into China's global ambitions. China's putting their, you know, their stones around the world, and they're putting them in positions in key areas so that when the time is right, a lot of other stones will turn to their color, to their side. China's Belt and Road Initiative has raised concerns around the world. We'll keep you updated. Over in the Pacific, Australia's got a Solomon Islands-style headache. Australia's foreign minister raised concerns on Tuesday. That's as a day earlier, the Solomon president signed a deal with China on police cooperation, one of nine deals struck during his visit to Beijing. Well, there, he said his country had a lot to learn from China. But Australia warns the policing deal will invite further regional contest. Back in 2022, a secretive China-Solomon Island security pact set off alarm bells in the West, with some fearing it could give Beijing a military foothold in the region, though the Solomon Islands deny that concern. On the other hand, Washington is plowing ahead with its attempts to reopen the U.S. Embassy in the Solomon Islands. Germany marks a new first. The country will soon send troops to Australia for joint drills, with some 30,000 service members from 12 other nations. What is Berlin's stance on the Indo-Pacific? NTD's Daniel Monaghan has more. 
In recent years, Germany has shown a greater military presence in the Indo-Pacific region, even as this means walking a tightrope between its security and economic interests, as China is Berlin's most important trading partner. German Army Chief Alphonse Meiss reacts. I guess it's not about sending a signal against anyone. We have just taken note of the German government's national security strategy. China plays a certain role in it. In 2021, a German warship sailed into the South China Sea for the first time in almost 20 years. Last year, Berlin sent 13 military aircraft to joint exercises in Australia, the Air Force's largest peacetime deployment. Mice said up to 240 German soldiers will take part in the exercise Talisman Sabre from July 22nd to August 4th. The exercises are the largest drills between Australia and the U.S., which are held biannually. The Germans will train jungle warfare and landing operations alongside soldiers from countries such as Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, France and Britain. I think it makes sense in principle to look at how others see the world. We can no longer just look at our little Europe here with a magnifying glass. China claims almost the entire South China Sea as its own. An international tribunal ruled that Beijing has no legal basis for those claims. China has built military outposts on artificial islands in the waters that contain gas fields and rich fishing. Some 40 percent of Europe's foreign trade flows through the South China Sea. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Western companies seem to be heading out of China in droves, but one pharmaceutical giant is buying in. U.S. drug maker Moderna just inked a new deal to make mRNA medicines in China. But there's one key factor. Any medicines produced under this agreement will be exclusively for the Chinese people and will not be exported. That's the word from a Moderna statement sent to CNN. The move marks the biotech company's first major investment in the country. And according to Chinese state media Yichai, the firm plans to pour a billion dollars into the operation. Reportedly, Moderna will set up shop in Shanghai's Minghang district and build a production plant. The development also marks a first for China, which has largely relied on its own Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines to fight the pandemic. Beijing has not approved any foreign-made mRNA jabs, including Moderna's. Under the deal, Moderna joins other major U.S.-based drug maker operating in China. Johnson & Johnson launched its China business in 1985. Pfizer has run there for over 30 years. In a controversial move, China is doling out pregnancy drugs to girls as young as 15. This new fertility campaign has sparked wrath on social media. Let's take a closer look. According to a notice from China's western Sichuan province, female citizens can now receive free folic acid, an important pre- and post-pregnancy supplement. The policy applies to women ages 15 to 49. The initiative followed a survey on women's intentions about having children. But the inclusion of 15-year-olds has sparked disputes. Comments say that girls at this age should receive puberty health guidance, not fertility drugs. The campaign appeared legitimate. In China, the minimum age of sexual consent is 14, younger than the 16 to 18 bracket in the U.S. Sichuan officials also defended that the 15 to 49 age group aligns with what the World Health Organization defines as women of reproductive age. Yet in a separate study by the WHO, complications related to pregnancy and childbirth were listed as the leading causes of death for girls aged 15 to 19. 
Other Internet users compared the new fertility incentive to Beijing's infamous one-child policy, active from 1979 to 2016. It involved state programs tied to forced abortion, sterilization, and infanticide of baby girls. On social media, one comment read, those who are 49 now were born in 1974. The draconian measures at that time restricted their will to give birth. Now they're being forced to give birth. Is it really that hard to treat people like human beings? To combat population decline, China launched its three-child policy in 2021. But young Chinese are largely unwilling to give birth now due to growing pressures like the cost of living. Last year, China recorded a mere 9.5 million newborns, the lowest since 1949 when the Chinese Communist Party came to power. $10,000 in cash, fine jewelry and 18-karat gold, and a special mission. Our network is looking to find one true beauty through the NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant. Why is discovering true beauty and traditional values in today's world so important? And what does it have to do with women's role in society? NTD's Juliet Song speaks to the event's organizer to find out. After rounds of screening and interviews, 40 candidates made it to the final competition of NTD's global Chinese beauty pageant. And they will have the chance to come to New York for the live competition. The pageant aims to promote the aesthetic values found in traditional Chinese culture. It also pushes for a return to pure beauty. Why host a beauty pageant? Actually, we noticed that in the last couple of years, maybe last maybe 20, 30 years, we see the definition of beauty has been deviated dramatically. And we see a lot of um, abnormal things happen in different, in, in different parts of the world. So we think it's a high time for us to have the responsibility to make a change. Yin noted that discovering true beauty that is measured by traditional values is critical in today's world. Women play a very important role, not only by herself, but also in the family, in the society. He said traditional values such as compassion and morality can also play a guiding role. And how to recreate a harmony in the family, in the society. In this ways, we can bring back the, the world to the right track. What makes this event unique? Beyond appearance, NTD's pageant plays a great emphasis on inner beauty. Contestants will be judged on five essential values, morality, righteousness, propriety, benevolence, and faithfulness. All this can contribute to the formation of the inner beauties and inner characters, and which we believe will reflect in the internally, externally. And this is what we call the real beauty of the women. One of the pageant's honorary advisory board members say they hope the event gives young women a chance to showcase their true beauty. We really show people how beautiful we are by showing acts of love. Um, because there can be somebody who may not have the same aesthetics as somebody else, but who has such a beautiful spirit that you can't help but be attracted to them. And it isn't because of their outward appearance, it's because of the, what they have inside their soul, their spirituality, their kindness, their gentleness, their, their peace. The winner will be crowned Miss NTD and travel around the world to promote the essence of traditional aesthetic values. The final competition will be held in late September inside SUNY Purchase College in upstate New York. The grand finals will also showcase evening gowns designed exclusively by a fashion line called Shenyun Dancer. Tickets will be available for purchase soon, and information can be found on MissNTD.org. Juliet Song, NTD News. Miss NTD, the first NTD global Chinese beauty pageant.
Another big story to look out for, luxury jewelry Bulgari under fire in China. After Chinese users spotted the company's website listing Taiwan alongside China. What's the fallout? That report and more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. Tonight, hope prevails in times of adversity. Dr. A.R. Bernard provides a voice of faith in seeking common ground for America's common good. Also, Travis Steffens, creator of the world's first breath app, teaches how breathing is fundamental to hope. That's next on America's Hope. But coming up today, is Washington doing too little in the Central Pacific? Beijing's influence has gradually eroded America's presence in the region. But what should be done? A key international treaty agreement between the U.S. and Pacific Island nations is up for renewal this year. Could it restore Washington's defenses in the Central Pacific? We sat down with Grant Newsham, retired Marine colonel and author of When China Attacks, for details. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Is the U.S. fighting China on the wrong battlefield? Beijing is racking up big political wins over in the Pacific Islands. The zone was the site of the fiercest fighting during World War II. What's behind Beijing's interest in the region? And is Washington's influence there dissolving? We speak to Grant Newsham, retired Marine colonel and author of When China Attacks, for more. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. No, thanks. Glad to be here. These compacts of free association or COFA agreements that are up for renewal and with three Pacific Island nations, that's Palau, Micronesia and the, uh, the Marshall Islands. And these areas were crucial during World War II. So where do you see them being in terms of, say, a potential invasion over Taiwan in this time and age? Uh, to those three states, they're right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They occupy an area about the size of the United States. That's how big it is. And one way to look at it, it is, it's effectively our rear area. If you're defending uh, Taiwan, if you're defending uh, the Western Pacific, and you are lined up from Japan, Korea, down through uh, Taiwan, through the Philippines, down to Malaysia, that's your first island chain, the COFA states, the freely associated states, the three that you mentioned, they're right in the middle of the sort of the back area. And whoever occupies that has a huge advantage. We have had it uh, since World War II. Uh, we seized it from the Japanese, uh, great cost, and we've had it since then. Uh, it is, from a military standpoint, just essential to have this territory that we control uh, and that the enemy or our adversaries cannot get into. So these agreements have to be renewed and we're in that process, but there's a problem that Congress is balking at the cost of them. Uh, the cost of these agreements is actually, uh, it, it's about $7 billion over 20 years. So this is about $116, $117, excuse me, million dollars a year for each country. Now, $117 million is literally about 30 minutes of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. Uh, in the scheme of the things in the U.S. budget, it's nothing. 
and yet we're balking over them. We're hesitating uh, to commit to that money, and it's uh, hurting us because the uh, one, the, the the locals, these three nations, they're saying, "Well, you you won't pay this," and how serious are you? And at the same time, the Chinese are out there with a blank check for the leaders of each of those countries saying, how much do you want? And this is a case where the U.S. has to get its act together very quickly or it will suffer immense uh, sort of harm to our strategic position in, the, in Asia. You cannot defend uh, Taiwan, for example. You can't defend Japan hardly if you do not control these, the areas that uh, these three nations uh, occupy. But what would really be the fallout if the U.S. doesn't renew these agreements? Well, America will eventually be forced out of Asia. Uh, we will be all the way back to California. The Chinese military will fill that vacuum. Chinese uh, economic power as well will fill in, and that leads to political control, political dominance. And China will dominate the region. Our, our allies, the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, will realize that we're not we're not there anymore, and they're going to have to either cut a deal with China or try to uh, maintain some sort of quasi-independence, which will be the best they can hope for. Uh, so if we don't have these uh, agreements, if we don't occupy this territory, we will be in an untenable position uh, to defend our interests uh, in, in, West, in the Western Pacific and ultimately in Asia. Part of that came down to understanding the nature of the Chinese Communist Party. And you actually co-authored a piece recently titled, U.S. Fighting China on the Wrong Battlefield. So what is the U.S. doing here and what would be the right battlefield? The Chinese interests, Chinese companies come in and dominate these, control them in most cases. And that gives you political influence because there you suddenly have in each of these countries uh, people who are uh, dependent on China, see themselves as dependent on Chinese money. Uh, it's both <clears throat> officials, politicians, and just regular some regular citizens start to see China as where their future lies, where their interests lie. And that translates into less cooperation with the U.S., say, on military matters, less cooperation on sort of global issues that America has. And it becomes to these come to be countries that are aligned with the PRC. They've gradually shifted away from the United States. And we can't quite figure out what happened because uh, we haven't uh, really done anything on the political warfare front. Uh, it's actually or done very much. It's, uh, political warfare is actually a dirty word with American diplomats. Uh, it's considered dishonest or uh, something. The Chinese have many diplomats, most of whom spoke, speak the local languages. Uh, they're running around bribing people all over the place, and America doesn't do anything to expose uh, this illegal financial dealings, the bribes, etc. cetera. Uh, so the Chinese have a free run. So you can see how we're being, we're losing psychologically and politically. Uh, and that is, needs much more attention, and it needs it now. Uh, but so it's not just a question of the U.S. Navy getting more ships and being more active. Yes, that's important and essential. But it's the political game, political warfare, which we have just let it lapse. We, we haven't done it since the 1980s, and we'd better wake up quickly. And Grant, given everything that's at stake here, what must the U.S. do right now? Uh, you have to challenge Chinese wrongdoing, particularly, as I said, that corruption. It's the grease that really makes what the Chinese do effective. 
I'm, you know, sad to say that, but uh, what do the local people think? Well, it's the Americans. They're not really doing much, but the Chinese are here and they want to help. Uh, this is where we're going to get money from. They're inviting us to visit China, et cetera, et cetera. You have other problems where we just don't give enough respect to these people. Uh, so those are a few things that you've got to do. One is go after the corruption, figure out what political warfare is and start doing it, taking on the Chinese, give these people some respect and also recognize what we get from these places. Uh, and if you, if you don't do that, well, we should prepare to lose because uh, China understands it very well. And but often just showing you've got some interest in a place, uh, well, that'll get you an awfully long ways. And in the Central Pacific, actually, America is well regarded and they're not asking for very much. They just want some attention and to show that you actually do give two hoots about them. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.